now say now you're tuned into the wake up and win podcast and i am your host devon pouncey i'm here in the beautiful city of portland oregon at the momentum studios and uh let's get to some wind shares real quick before we have our guests on the podcast today this weekend is labor day weekend i will be back on the rooftop both nights Friday and Saturday nights, at least. They will have an event up there on Sunday, but Friday and Saturday night, the second and the third, I will be at Export Rooftop Bar and Lounge from 9 p.m. to midnight, curating the vibes. The vibes and views residency continues. Um, This will be my last time there for a couple weeks. I'll be taking next weekend off. I've been getting it up there for the last month and a half or so. I've been doing Fridays and Saturdays up there, and it's been a great time. Again, appreciate everybody that showed up. It's been an absolute hit. We got the holiday weekend. It'll be a hit again. And then I'm just going to take a little bit of a break from there, at least. I still got work to do as next Saturday, the 10th of September. I'll be back at Bible Club from 7 to 10 p.m. Um, on the backyard patio out there in Sailwood. So it'll be a good change of scene. Being able to go DJ there, obviously, I DJ there about once or twice a month anyway. So looking forward to that, and then we'll be back at Export the following week. But um, also, college football is on the horizon with our guest today. We'll be talking about college football as it's starting up this weekend. But as for me in particular, I'll be back on the call September 17th for Pacific University Boxer Football. It will be a 7 p.m. kickoff. Pacific will be playing against Pomona Pitzer that weekend. So definitely excited to put the headset back on and be back doing play-by-play. Sports season is back in effect. At least the sports that I commentate for is back in effect. So super excited for that. Also, I definitely know that I'll be busy here in the very near future with football, and that obviously will roll right over into college basketball season. So um, make sure you tune into that. Obviously, I'll be announcing that the next couple of weeks as well as we roll up to that game, their first home game. They do play this weekend against Chapman University on the road down in Southern California, so good luck to them there. But um, if you want to hear me on the call, I'll be doing all home games at Pacific University this year starting September 17th. Next up, we're bringing somebody you all know, my guy, my friend, my former co-host, He is the host of the Rip City Morning Show on Rip City 620 here in Portland, Oregon, and one of the best people to talk to about college football, in particular the Oregon Ducks, who have a huge game coming up this weekend. So sit back, tune in, let's have a little conversation with my guy, Justin Myers. On the line right now, we have my guy, my friend, my brother, one of the best when it comes to talking about Oregon Ducks football, and he is the host of Rip City Mornings. Justin Myers, man, glad to have you back. What's up? It is so it is so so glad to be back on on the Wake Up and Win podcast. Uh obviously me doing the morning show, it is my goal each and every day when the alarm goes off bright and early at 4:30 a.m. to wake up and win on the radio every single day. Talk so to about be on the it. Wake Up and Win podcast. Uh I I feel like you know, it's just is is where I'm meant to be. Also, sitting here talking sports and whatever else we're going to get into over the next couple of minutes with my uh, with my buddy Pounce is where I need to be. Oh, because believe you me, we're talking more than sports today, baby. I got an ebony and ivory question on the docket for you. <laughs> believe that. 
it's coming. And if and if one comes to mind for you, you can kick one back my way as well as we sit here and talk Oregon Ducks. But but obviously it's a big game this weekend. Number eleven Oregon Ducks going down to Atlanta to face off against the number three University of Georgia Bulldogs, who also happen to be the defending champs. But um, yesterday uh, you actually did a, a a switch with your drive time show on six twenty because. I'm driving home, commuting back home after work, and I was pleasantly surprised because I heard you at 3 p.m. on the Drive Time show, and obviously, you know, you you primarily cover and discuss college football. It's your thing. I actually talked about it a little bit last week on here, how when you and I had our show together, you kind of took the lead whenever it was college football stuff, and then you would kind of passed the buck to me a bit more when we got into the basketball content during basketball season. That was just kind of how we rolled. But as I'm listening, you educated me yesterday because you talked about Ticketgate, which was something I absolutely knew nothing about. And to give context to Ticketgate, the Oregon Ducks have 6,000 comp tickets, around 6,000 comp tickets for this weekend's game. The University of Georgia has about 20,000 comp tickets for this weekend's game, yet it's still being considered a neutral site game. How does that work, Justin Myers? Can you break it down for me, please? Well, again, it's you know typical SEC arrogance, right? They think, oh, it's a neutral site game, uh, but you know what? They're just going to hold on to about a third of the tickets. I mean, obviously, when <laughs> Oregon scheduled this game, they knew that it was going to be about 90% Georgia fans in the building, but at least they could have evened out the ticket allotment and let like some Oregon fans make a buck or two selling them to the Georgia fans who are probably going to pay, you know, out of their ears to get into the, uh, get into the building to see this game. But no, it's just, just another example of the sec taking all the advantage of playing a quote unquote neutral site game in Atlanta. And also as, as an Oregon fan, it's just another fun way to, uh, you know, to get fired up about the game. It's just another way that they're trying to slight Oregon. You know, Oregon, the, the, the little guy out west that just is not ever getting the respect they deserve. You know what I'm saying? For sure, for sure. But And <laughs> whose fault is this? Like, who could possibly consider this a neutral site game? Is it the NCAA? You already obviously mentioned the SEC. Like, how does this get considered a neutral site game, being that Georgia's playing in their home state? And obviously, as we mentioned, they've got three times as many comp tickets as the University of Oregon has on this nationally televised game. I mean, the good news is, right, this is, it's a neutral site game, but it, like, it would have an asterisk by it. No, like, I don't think anybody who is looking at the college football playoff, anybody that's looking at the schedule would ever actually claim that it's a neutral side game. Right. It really kind of gets gets into like the semantics of like the payout, right? The difference mm. is if this was a real road game, Oregon would go to Georgia and Georgia would cut a check to Oregon because Georgia would get all of the TV money. This is a little bit different and both schools are going to walk out uh, I think Georgia's getting five million for the game. I think Oregon's getting four and a half million for the game. Um, and, uh, and and the Chick Fil A Bowl is the organization that's putting on, and they're the ones that are cutting the check. The whole ticket thing, though, is it's just kind of semantics. It's 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 basic economics. I mean, they right. looked at it and said Georgia is going to have you know probably. 70,000 crazy barking bulldog fans yeah. in and around the uh, in and around the stadium. Oregon will be lucky to be able to get, you know, about 10,000 people into the stadium. So it it's an economic thing, but it just 
on paper, it just it just looks like, oh, this is it. This is the SEC claiming neutral site, but yet gathering up all of the ticket allotment. Absolutely. Obviously, when you get this game on the schedule, this game was obviously one that you look forward to coming into this season. We already know the powerhouse that Georgia is. We know the 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 brand that is the University of Oregon, especially when it comes to football in particular. But we've had a lot of drama this offseason in the Pac-12. You got the L.A. schools that are leaving the Pac-12. You got a bunch of schools that are trying to land some, tw- some Pac-12 spots here in the near future. But following the drama of the Pac-12 and Oregon being able to have an opportunity to play against the defending national champions, how much bigger did this game become dealing with Everything that happened this offseason and all the concerns and all the feathers that were ruff- that were ruffled within the Pac-12 conference over the summer. I mean, you, you take all of that and then add one more huge thing, right? Mario Cristobal left Oregon after the Pac-12 championship game to take over at Miami. And then Oregon hired Georgia's defensive coordinator. Yeah. So on top of all of the Pac-12 stuff, you have uh, an, a, another little drama playing out because the last time Dan Lanning, who Oregon's head coach, was on a football sideline, he was wearing the red and the black of the Georgia Bulldogs. Yes, with indeed. coming down in Indianapolis as they were raising the national championship trophy. So you've got that as well. Like th- this was always a huge game, but, you know, that's always kind of been the case for Oregon. It's why they take these games, right? They played um, Ohio State in the horseshoe last year. In 2020, they were supposed to play Ohio State at Austin. Obviously, COVID ruined that. In 2019, they went down to Dallas and faced Auburn. They faced LSU in 2011. Like they, Oregon has kind of you know, had a little recent tradition of, of playing these games because they know the importance. When you play out West and when you play in the Pac-12, you've got to make a splash early on and then like you said all the other stuff which i don't know how much the players actually care about this because well you were in your teens well before or you know way sooner than i was in my teens but i can remember when i was 19 when i was 20 bounce i couldn't figure out what was happening three weeks in my life let alone what's going to be happening in three years so i don't know what's going to be going on with the players but for these teams and for these coaches and i think for the fan bases uh the uncertainty of the conferences and if Oregon can get a big win at Georgia, does that make them more enticing to the Big Ten? Does that make them maybe enticing to the SEC when all this conference stuff starts shaking up? That's all it's going to be hanging over every Pac-12 school all season long. For sure. because And I feel like perception wise, again, this is a huge game for Oregon. But for some strange reason, I don't know if it's homerism or I don't know if it's maybe because last year Oregon had the big game early on in the season against Ohio State and was able to win that game. I remember that being on national TV. But it feels like Oregon's kind of got a chance against the University of Georgia, at least on my end. How does it feel for you? What's your prediction for this game and why? Well, absolutely. I've talked myself into thinking that Oregon's got a chance, but I'm also... <laughs> We're a, homers. We're homers. I'm a complete <laughs> Oregon homer when, when it comes to figuring this out. I mean, here's where I think Oregon does have a chance, right? Mario Cristobal isn't the head coach, but he left the cupboard full. Oregon, in terms of recruiting the last three years, has been the best that the university has ever had in its history. They have had top five, top 10 classes. And then Dan Lanning came in and did a masterful job of retaining a lot of those recruits that were maybe on the fence when Cristobal left. So Oregon's got talent. They've got 
uh, Noah Sewell, who's a preseason All-American. They've got Justin Flo, who was one of the top-rated linebackers coming out of high school, and then unfortunately missed a good chunk of the season last year with a broken foot. They like they have got talented guys on both sides of the ball. And also, credit to Cristobal, Oregon's problem in these type of games in years past pounds has never been with the skill positions. It's never been with the guys with the speed. It's right. always been with the big guys up front in the trenches. Well, over the last four years, Cristobal built up Oregon's offensive and defensive line mm-hmm. and is focused on recruiting the big guys up front. And those guys stuck around. So the entire offensive line from a year ago is back. Now the big X factor is going to be quarterback. Bo Nix comes in. He was a highly recruited player out of high school. He had problems at Auburn had some inconsistencies as a freshman, went through a coaching change, had problems with his offensive coordinator, and ultimately left Auburn. And now he gets a new shot here with Oregon with two years uh, of eligibility remaining. Which Bo Nix is going to show up? Is it going to be the blue chip, five-star, you know, top five quarterback in high school that was recruited to Auburn? Or is it going to be you know, the inconsistent guy that we saw at Auburn the last couple of years. That's, to me, the huge deal in all of this. Can can Bo Nix show up? And then on the other side, and I talked about this on my radio show, Georgia was unbelievable last year. One Absolutely. of the greatest defenses we have seen in college football history. Ten of those dudes are gone. Mm. They're gone. Seven, seven of them were drafted in the NFL. Yeah, that <laughs> sounds which, about right. One of which was undrafted but is still in an NFL camp. So eight of those dudes that were playing for Georgia last year are in NFL locker rooms right now as we speak, and two other guys transferred. So Georgia is going to have to replace 50% of its starting lineup from a year ago. You go back to, to 2019 – when LSU and Joe Burrow ran roughshod over everybody and had one of the greatest seasons in college football history, well, they fell off the next year because while they were recruiting well, they still had a bunch of backups who spent that summer staring at those championship rings thinking they did something when it was mm, really the starters yeah. who were on the field. So I, I think Oregon's got, got a little something there because Georgia has so much to replace and here's the other thing. While Dan Lanning was a defensive coordinator, Pounce, you know this. While defensive coordinators have some leeway, it is always under the umbrella of the head coach. The head coach sets the tone for everything. Well, now Dan Landing is a head coach. I don't know how the guy's going to coach. He could be tremendous. He could be mediocre. He could be absent-minded. We don't know. And Georgia doesn't know either. Kenny Dillingham, who is the offensive coordinator that Oregon got from Florida State, He's coming in, but he's never called plays before. Mm. So nobody at Georgia really has anything to expect. Now, that could be awful for Oregon. Yeah. It could be great for Oregon. None of us really know because there's so much unknown between Bo Nix, Dan Lanning, and Kenny Dillingham. Oh, guys, you just you don't have a feel for because there is no history to go on. Now, now I'm curious what your thought on this is because you would you you talk about the advantage or lack thereof that Georgia has in not really knowing what to expect from Oregon, and one would assume that because Dan Lanning came from Georgia, that the Ducks would have a little bit more of an advantage in regards to him knowing what that program is all about. Obviously, him knowing some of those players and some of those guys out there, but like you just mentioned. Over 50% or about 50% of Georgia starters no longer are there. Is that advantage still the same, being able to have landing on the Duck side going up against a school that he just won a championship with, a national championship with some months ago? 
I think so because you've got uh, Stetson Bennett, who is Georgia's quarterback. He's still there. Now think about this. Dan Lanning is the defensive coordinator. When they were going ones versus ones in practice all season long, Dan Lanning had so many reps as a defensive coordinator against Stetson Bennett and against this Georgia offense. That's more than any amount of film you can watch all summer long. So in terms of tendencies and likes and and you know what makes him tick, what makes him uncomfortable – I think that's the advantage that Oregon has. You're right. There's going to be a lot of turnover and, and you know, a lot of guys being put in, in different positions for Georgia. But I think the little sliver of an advantage that Oregon has is that Dan Lanning knows everything about Stetson Bennett, especially that Georgia offense. He knows how to disrupt it. He knows uh, exactly how to get pressure, where pressure can come from. Now, Kirby Smart, the head coach of Georgia, he knows all of this. And I'm sure he's got some surprises up his for sleeve. For sure. But the other the other thing is, though, let's be honest, Pounce, when it comes to college football, generally speaking, most often the team with the most talent wins. Not always, but the team with the most talent wins. So all these advantages that I think Oregon has still has a mountain to climb because Georgia has big time recruits. And as we mentioned right at the top, this game's in Atlanta. It's a yeah. road game. Road games are always tough. So even with all those advantages, Oregon still has a massive mountain to climb to win this game. What are your expectations for landing this season? Uh, obviously, we can talk about, you know, the Ducks ultimately want to become national champions. I think, like, that is the ultimate goal for Duck football um, is to become national champions. Again, we know how prominent the brand is of Oregon Duck football. But for this particular season, you mentioned how well Crystal Ball sort of set landing up in regards to recruits and talent. We know what Lanning is coming off of winning the national championship. Do you think Lanning might be looking at those rings as well from last year coming into this season? Just what do you expect from him and and what would be considered a, a, a less than par season for him if he doesn't achieve like whatever bar you assume should be the bar for him this year? The thing that I'm really curious to see is how he handles what is inevitably going to be those transitional growing pains. All right? I've, I've been covering Oregon football for a long time. Yes, you have. And every, every new coach has had some sort of growing pain, has had to figure out how to adjust. You go all the way back to when Chip Kelly took over from Mike Bellotti. The first game ever, Oregon loses at Boise State. LeGarrette Blunt knocks out a player for <laughs> Boise State. He's just, like, your starting running back is suspended for the year. A melee break, like, that's that's game one. Chip Kelly had to figure out how to, you know, how to how to tread water and, and how to get past that, that ultimate kind of hiccup. And he did an incredible job because they won the conference that year and went to the Rose Bowl, and we saw the success after that. Mark Helfrich took over. In that first year that Mark Helfrich took over, you had Marcus Mariota with a knee injury and didn't play well down the stretch, lost a couple of games they should have won, ended up in the Alamo Bowl, but we saw Helfrich that next season get Oregon back to the college football playoff. You and I were on the radio when Willie Taggart was there. Remember yeah. the game, like game game four, Justin Herbert breaks his collarbone. Yep. So now Willie Taggart's got to deal with a backup quarterback. Did not handle it well. Braxton Burmeister did not look like he was put in a position to succeed. And, and you saw some of the frustrations there. And then, of course, Cristobal had to take over a team that basically now had three had to take over a team of players that were not recruited by him, not recruited by Taggart and had three head coaches in three years. Every new head coach at Oregon is going to have something. It's yeah. never been a seamless transition. And so I'm very curious to see 
how Dan Landing handles what is going to be a hiccup at some point in the season. The game I'm going to circle pounds is not this game against Georgia. This is kind of a freebie, right? right? Unless Oregon gets beat by about 45, if they go in and compete, no harm, no foul, I think, for Oregon with a new head coach going on the road against the national champions. The game is game or week three, BYU. Mm. BYU last year went 5-0 and against the Pac-12. BYU is a year away from joining the Big 12 and becoming a Power 5 school. Game 3 at Autzen, that's the curious one for me, for Dan Lanning. But getting back to your, your second question, I think what would be a less-than-par season if Oregon is not in the Pac-12 championship game? I think that's a disappointment because I think the league is still down. I think USC is going to have some growing pains as well. They got a lot of new guys on that team, but you know, it takes time to build up rapport, to build up chemistry and to just put essentially kind of a college football all-star team together is going to have some hiccups. Utah is still the favorite, but new coaches at Washington, at Washington state um, you've got and, and at Oregon and at USC I just think that the conference isn't strong enough to to give Oregon with all the talent that it does have a pass if it's not in the conference championship game. And the other thing is this year, the Pac-12 did away with the North and the South divisions. Yeah. So basically, if you are in the top two, you're going to the championship game. There have been years where, you know, it always seems to be stinking Stanford. Um, (laughs) There are years that Oregon gets snake bit by a team, right? And just. They may be the second best team, but they're not. They're in the same division. Right. That's out anymore. You just got to be the top two in the conference. I think they can be that. And I think whether it's it's fair or not, we live in an unfair world with the amount of talent that Oregon has. If they're not in the Pac-12 championship game, I think most fans are going to see that as a disappointing season. Definitely. I, I agree wholeheartedly with that. Do you like that they did away with the North and South format? I wish they would have done it in 2012 uh, because in in 2012, 11-1 Oregon didn't get a chance to play in the Pac-12 championship game because they lost to Stanford. And then that team didn't get a chance to avenge that loss to Stanford and would have been playing in the national championship game against Notre Dame and Manti Teo. I don't know if you saw that documentary. That should have been Oregon playing in that game and not (laughs) Alabama. Not that I hold on to this grudge from 10 years ago or that it's still... Clearly you do. Clearly you do. Clearly you do. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. (laughs) But but in all all seriousness, here's the thing. The Pac-12 has done a terrible job in the last couple of years of not putting its best foot forward, right? Not putting its best teams in positions to win. And this was another example of having the North and the South. And now I thought that Commissioner George Klayovkov did a great job saying, no, The two best teams are going to be playing that gives the best opportunity to make the college football playoffs. So I like the move of getting rid of the divisions. Got it. Got it. I got to ask you about this man, Titeo, Doc, now. (laughs) You brought it up (laughs) because I did watch it, by the way. It sounds like you watched it as well. Just generally, what were some of your thoughts, especially connecting it to that season that the University of Oregon had that year? And, you know, how good of a team that they were that year. Just what were some of the thoughts that ran through your mind? Did you have any flashbacks? Like, what what, what, what do you think about that? It was a great doc. Well, I, I, mean, ob- I, mean, it, I mean, obviously, I came from a different perspective watching the, you know, the, the, the documentary did a good job of kind of highlighting, like, 
all of the stuff that KL was dealing with going into that national championship game yeah. and trying to keep this crazy, unbelievable secret of being catfished when we didn't even know what being catfished was back then. Right. And and all of those highlights against Alabama. But yes, as a, as a bitter Oregon fan that year, because Zach Ertz, the tight end for Stanford, was out of bounds on a fourth down play, scored a touchdown to go ahead. But never mind that. I'm watching that game going, man, that should have been Oregon in that game. I should have been at that game. But... But but going back to it, I mean, look, it, I remember obviously covering Oregon that year and covering college football uh, that season, and and I remember the story of Tao. I before we knew about the whole uh, catfishing part of it, I, I I was talking about that guy should have won the Heisman that year, and yeah. I'm I'm adamant, pounds. He should have won the Heisman. Notre Dame was undefeated. He had seven interceptions as a middle linebacker. That's he crazy. Was at, absolute lights out dude at Notre Dame. And on top of that, you had this story of uh, this girlfriend that died. And here's the other thing, like all of this is, is awful. When you look back with the lens and go like, well, how, how could he have a girlfriend that he never met? And then you think now of online relationships and, yeah. and you know, the way Tinder, we use technology swindler. Right now. <laughs> exactly. Like there's so, there's so many so many things we look at, look at now and go, oh yeah, that, that that's not that weird. But the other part of it is his grandmother did die. Yeah. And, yeah. and then this catfishing thing piled on that. I mean, it's tough enough because I thought it did a good job of showing just kind of how, a you know, a, a Polynesian born native Hawaiian Mormon goes to South Bend, Indiana, Midwest America, Catholic school yeah. and just what a culture shock that must have been. And to think of anything from back home. And, you know, I, I remember, look, I went from Southern Oregon to just outside of Seattle in college. I was homesick as much as anybody. Yeah, I couldn't I imagine it. moving, moving across the country. You, you moved from the Bay area up to, uh, you know, to Forest uh, Grove, to Forest, Oregon, to Forest rural Grove, Oregon. So there in Thor's Grove, got to think, well, where on earth am I? So imagine yeah. from Hawaii to Indiana, and you're there at Notre Dame and everything else. And, and I mean, the guy was just looking for, you know, companionship, was looking for something from back home, and, and he got taken advantage of. And, yeah, just looking back now with information and clear eyes that we have on technology, boy, just what a, a disservice we all did. Because we should have, like, we should have had compassion because his grandmother did die. Yeah. He then got taken advantage of and scammed. And, and I understand because it's hard not to make fake girlfriend jokes. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. And that was the part where like, I, I wasn't necessarily like attached to him as a victim, even though he was a, a victim, if you will, if like I'm speaking politically correct. But I, I don't know. Like, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> like that, I, I didn't feel. I felt bad because I do think he his intentions were good, and he did genuinely get taken advantage of. I didn't necessarily feel bad for how he got taken advantage of. I felt like he could have been a little bit more on point. But I do think what was so prevalent about the doc is that timing wise, when you consider, as you as you mentioned, the advancements of technology and we do have the Tinder swindlers and we do have so many online relationships that we see now and it's kind of become prevalent. And then the other person who's 
now basically who not basically but has transitioned and how prevalent mm-hmm. that culture has become if you will i do feel like the timing of being able to kind of speak through both of those processes and kind of what went through the mental of these two particular people in those processes i think it was very great for them to release that doc at this particular moment in time and outside of this of them just doing a great job with the doc i feel like that enhanced some of the success that the doc is having yeah, it was just, it was so odd back then of thinking like how, like how could you have an online relationship and, and how that could be anything more than just like a pen pal. Yeah. And, 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 and as we kind of see it right now, like it, it obviously clearly was. And, and then because we're all crazy skeptics, right? Oh, was he in on it? Was this all for publicity? Because right. I mean, it was massively convenient, right? He's he's at Notre Dame. He's now he has this story of you know the the students have the the you know the Hawaiian lays that you know and and now all eyes are on him and Notre Dame is is going through this magical season and then you look back and go oh wait it was it was made up. It's so easy to jump to that conclusion of well did he make it up? Yeah, because he. He became the most popular player in college football in 2012, but obviously with everything he went through afterwards, there's no possible way anyone would make that up because of, of seeing what happened afterwards. And then again, you know, I couldn't even imagine what it would be like going into the NFL and now you're, you're the guy with the fake girlfriend. And yeah. NFL locker rooms are not the nicest place in the world. No, no. A- a- the guy with the fake girlfriend and guys are now like, skeptical of your sexuality and what yeah. I would consider to be like a hyper-masculine sport <laughs> that is football. And again, t- back to timing, it- it's not the same culture today. Like you could come out as whatever you want to be in professional football today and like it's cool, you know what I'm saying? But back then, and that's still only just 10 years ago, like that was like a no-go, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. When we consider just locker room culture and, again, just the hyper-masculinity that comes with the sport of football. So, yeah, I felt bad for what he had to endure, and, and that's the that's like the most I felt bad for. But more than anything, I think it was yeah. just inter- interesting, like hearing about these two human experience because they were pretty intense. Yeah. He, he, by the way, he also did play seven years in the NFL and made about ten million dollars. So, yeah, that's fair. I mean, it's, it's not, that's fair. It's not like he, above not average for sure. Above average. Career. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> above average. All right, Justin. Let's get to Ebony and Ivory here, right? Oh, my favorite. Let's segment. get to Ebony and Ivory here before I let you go. So, I I know you, and I know you are a huge fan of '90s hip hop. Now. 90s hip-hop, especially West Coast hip-hop in particular, was pretty vulgar. Like, like probably the most vulgar era of hip-hop, if you will. Now, fast forward about a month or so ago, I'm watching a clip online, and there's a newer artist who's one of the, one of the hotter artists in the game in hip-hop. His name is Roddy Rich. Now, Roddy was doing some kind of festival in, like, Europe or something, and the clips went around of of his of his festival, I mean, of his performance, excuse me, like going viral and the crowd was just rocking with him overseas. Now, being that it was in Europe, it was like pretty much a predominantly white crowd. And so here comes the point where it's time for him to say the N-word in one of the biggest records called The Box and the entire crowd in Europe says the N-word right along with him. 
<laughs> so now, now again, this is Europe. So maybe things are different there. I don't know. But now scaling it back to America, because this has been an ongoing conversation for years, but me knowing how big of a 90s hip hop fan you are, I know you've probably been to a bunch of shows and seen a bunch of performers. How hard is it when you are at a show for you to avoid saying the N-word when rapping your favorite song while your favorite artist is performing it? Because <laughs> for me, it's natural. I'm going to let it fly every time. You know what I'm saying? But for you, you got to kind of be yes. a little more conscious about it. So while I would think it would be, it should be easy for you to know not to rap that particular lyric, I don't yes. have to deal with getting any backlash if I rap the lyric, so I let it fly every time. What's that experience like for you? Here's here's the advantage of being a little bit old, Pounce. A little bit older and, and, and you know, a little bit you know, of a veteran of, you know, of, of, of the... Uh, of the 90s hip hop game. When when I was growing up, we had on radio or on MTV jams nothing but edited songs. You right. guys grew up with with Spotify and YouTube and every version that you had was the explicit version. Yes. Except, you know, maybe if you heard it on the radio, but you didn't have videos on MTV. You didn't I mean, I I doubt you listen to music on the radio. You've got no. it all on your phone. You grew yes, up I do. in the era of the of the iPod. You had all your music For sure. at at your fingertips. I'm so a I'm a LimeWire baby. I'm a LimeWire baby. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Frostwire, all computer. that. Do you get LimeWire? You blow up. How many computers you blow up? <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't matter. That's what we did. <laughs> I blew up so many computers. Oh yeah, but, I bet. <laughs> but but again, like you know, when 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 I grew up and and when. Uh, the Chronic album came out, and when when Doggy Style came out, the only place we could hear it if we didn't have the album. And by the way, uh, I was in seventh grade, and my mom wouldn't let me buy uh, the Parental Advisory Explicit Lyric albums. You had to go uh, find an older kid to buy it for you, and then sneak it into your sock drawer. Got it. Um, that's, <laughs> but like, we, all we got was the edited version. Mm. So like. And back then, they would cut two versions of singles. They would be uh, there would be the explicit version, and then there would be the edited version, not just bleeped out, but they would change the word. And the N word was a lot of times was brother. Like, brother. Was, <laughs> was there, and so uh, I, I think like it it gave it gave us in our age a little bit of an advantage of like no, we just say brother in that part of the song. Got it? Because that's. That's what we heard on the radio. But to get to your original question, uh, let's just say it's not that hard. And anybody that says it's hard is full of it. Because let me tell you, if you were at a frat party with a bunch of white dudes and they put on a song and you maybe slip up and drop it, that's you end up at a party with uh, a couple African-American guys. Trust me. You know not to say the word. Yeah. You know everything. Like you can self-edit. You you scan the crowd first, and so mm. yeah. For me, it is it is it is not that hard um, to uh, to to not drop uh, the unedited version of of all of my uh, of the end bomb. Hey, hey, but but yes. I'm curious. Have you been to any parties where you scan the room? It's all white people here, and all the white people here love hip hop. And we're going to let the end bomb fly together here. <laughs> Have you had that experience? <laughs> I would, 
Count, I would like to tell you no. I would, I would, lo- I would love to sit here and tell you no. That's fair. I want to know. The real. But, but yeah, and, and that's the thing. Like, it doesn't come with hate or malice. It To me, it is appreciation of the song. I've probably slipped more times than I care to admit, but I, I've learned the errors of my ways, and yeah. you, you, you figure it out from there. No, no, that's fair. And, and here's the thing. It's like, the N word sounds really fucking cool. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, like the word sounds great. Again, it rolls off of my tongue like it's nothing. Now, granted, I don't have to ever question in any circumstances if I should be saying the word or not because of my my what I identify as and my race. But I mean, I, I, I think about songs like the YG songs and my N word, my N word. And like, like we made the, we, 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 we gentrified a word that was, uh, that was totally against us. And, and we made it sound pretty damn good, <laughs> which is rare. Cause usually we start the cool stuff and then it gets gentrified from us. And then it, it doesn't come out as cool, but it's like, this is one of the rare occasions where we were able to take a word that was demeaning or degrading to us as a people. Yeah. And we, made it sound really dope what's what's interesting because you mentioned that at a european festival and how obviously that word still has connotations in For europe sure. they're they, they got google like they, they know yeah. what's going on definitely but in 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 our country at least in in my experience you know almost every grown adult male knows that if you were a white guy and you say that word and, and you're probably going to fight. Yeah. Like, like, like fists are going to fly. And you just, but where, like, I would imagine in Europe, it's probably not the case. They're probably like, hey, watch your mouth. Don't say that. Here we know, like, yeah, it's, it, it's somebody's going to punch you. Well, so, well like, or you're, it, it's interesting you say that, right? Because I grew up in like inner city areas in the Bay Area. And one thing that I always say, just kind of like, my general rule for the N-word is like, if you have to question whether you should be saying it or not, then just don't say it. That's kind of like my yeah. general rule of thumb, right? But, it's a good one. I, but I definitely grew up in an area where instead of having like the token black guy, we had the token white guy who says the <laughs> word, but because he grew up under the same circumstances that we grew up in, like we give him the pass for saying that. and. All right, all right. Can I? Can I? Because since we're in the spirit of, of Ebony and I, let's do it. Let's take it there. The the, the the segment that you and I created, so we can ask these questions in a safe place because we are friends and we love each other. Absolutely. Uh, so, is is that what is known as the the ghetto pass or the hood pass? For sure. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Because if if you're from the ghetto or you're from the hood and you just so happen to be white. I, I've seen on more more times than one where you can get away with that. But but now if we leave the ghetto and we leave the hood and we hear a white person saying it elsewhere, it's a problem. So that's 100% the ghetto pass and the hood pass. But I don't even know if it's a pass because, again, like, we know this dude grew up here. Like, I, 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 yeah. I got a few friends that I could think of, you know, and, and we refer to him as white boy this or white boy such and such or white boy such. White boy Jojo is one of them. I can just give from an exam, for an example one of my friends I grew up with. And, like, if white boy Jojo says the N-word, like, I, I don't really have a problem with it because 
I know what white boy Jojo comes from. I know white boy Jojo has been through the trenches and been through the same struggles that I've been through because we went through them together, growing up together. But now when I go to college in Forest Grove, Oregon, and I hear somebody <laughs> saying it, even if they did go through the same struggles that me and white boy Jojo went through back in the country club Crescent Vallejo, I don't know that you went through that same struggle or same experience. Yeah. So I'm calling you out for that. So I, I get what you're saying when you kind of talk about like scanning the room and, and understanding like, is this a place where I can say it? Now, one thing I also know about white boy Jojo that you kind of alluded to earlier, white boy Jojo willing to fight for it, man. He didn't have no choice but to fight for it <laughs> growing, up, growing up with us in the neighborhood. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, so, so it's, it's just, just like... It's, it's like it's like a, his task is like it's like a pizza coupon, right? It's only good at one location, right? right? It, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't work at, at another. It's not, they, they don't accept all coupons. It just only works at one location. But again, if he goes to another location where they don't accept it, I know in my heart of hearts that other location they got a problem on their on their hands because white boy JoJo <laughs> ready to get down. <laughs> All right, I, I have I have one. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned music and you mentioned hip hop, and yeah. I told I told you multiple times I'm old. Uh, I don't like the new music. I have, look, I'm I'm be 43 next week. Pounds. Yeah, I've officially become that age where it's like I I don't get it. All right, yeah. I don't get what the kids are listening to. Okay, and that's fine. Fair. You do you, but I'm I'm gonna ask you because I've noticed like you know when I was growing up there was Vanilla Ice, there was the Beastie Boys, and then like late 90s came Eminem and that was about it right now it seems like there are there are more non-African Americans in the hip-hop game so one guy I want to ask you about because I'm just curious your thoughts um what's the deal with Jack Harlow what's because this guy does <laughs> does not look it does not look the part counts <laughs> like I, what like what, what like I, I don't get it I I think Jack Harlow, first of all, I think he makes good music. Like, I, I, I listen to Jack Harlow's music. I think he makes, like, good kind of player-ish music that you could vibe to. Like, Jack Harlow is a good vibe. I agree he doesn't necessarily look the part, but, but his, vibe is, his vibe is pretty good. I think it's good there. For two, I think when you even talk about somebody like an Eminem, like, Eminem had a vouch from... Dr. Dre, which like, yeah, it doesn't really get no bigger than that. You know what I'm saying? As far as far as a vouch within hip hop. So if Dre is vouching for you, it's like, OK, we, we can get with you a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Obviously, some people still feel some type of way about Eminem and what he became within hip hop culture, if you will, especially being that he was a white guy. But you kind of get that pass, if you will, where Jack Harlow is in a situation where he signed a, what is it, Generation Now or Generation Next, one of those. But it's uh, DJ Drama's label, who is highly regarded in hip-hop culture when you consider the Gangsta Grills mixtapes that he's done and everything that he's done with all of these different artists. So I kind of think a part of it is not just being able to make good music, which I personally think Jack Harlow makes good music. And I also personally think Eminem was a good rapper. But you got to have somebody within the industry or within the culture that's willing to vouch for you that even the culture, we kind of can't question that. Like, I can't really question Dr. Dre, because it's Dr. Dre. I think drama has put himself in a position where I can't really question 
DJ Drama because it's DJ Drama and all of their contributions to hip-hop and hip-hop culture and hip-hop music makes it hard for me to not be able to be like, all right, you get that hood pass, if you will, like a Jack Harlow may get or like an Eminem once got. So that's what I think it is for me. I don't think he looks the part. I think he's got the right people around him. He had the right vouch, and he's figured out how to make hit records, and it's working for him. But still, though, like, <laughs> come on, just still. The little part of me has got to be like, this dirty dude from Louisville? <laughs> <laughs> is this the guy? And, and look, there are a lot of people that say that as well. And I think Dr. more Dre so, from more so I think it's people from your generation that say that, black or white. Black or white. I, I, I don't often hear people from, like, Maybe around your age group, you 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 you'll be forty three. My next birthday, I, I I'm I'm holding on to the last of my twenties, Justin. I'll be thirty on my next birthday. <laughs> my man, my my generation, embrace it. <laughs> I am, I am. I'm good with it. I'm good with it. My generation, like I said, we kind of can get with it. And then, like I also kind of really grew up on that era of. I think Lil Wayne is a huge part of being able to kind of like create that acceptance barrier because Lil Wayne was willing to like make music and other genres of music that didn't necessarily reflect people like us. But again, because he came from us, we were okay with him doing it and he had mass success while doing it. So I think now you just kind of got more of like a blend culture when it comes to these genres of music to where it's opening up lanes that may not have been quite as opened up you know, maybe in the 90s or in the earlier days of hip hop because it was so like culture specific that now you do got the Jack Harlow's, you do have the Post Malone's, you do have the g Easy's that are just getting these opportunities left and right, if you will. But for you, somebody that goes back to kind of that, you know, the earlier days of hip hop, which hip hop is still really young. It just celebrated what it's 49th birthday or something like that a, a week or two ago. Um I just think this is the times that we're in now, man. Genre blending is a major factor in not just hip-hop, but in music at large. And hip-hop has become like the most popular, at least the most streamed genre in music today. So it's just, it's, 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 it's the evolution of the industry, man. It's the evolution of the industry. That's the way I see it. But I actually like Jack Harlow. Not going to lie to you. I okay. like the guy. I like Jack right. Harlow. <laughs> but I've heard plenty, plenty of people that, that don't necessarily like him. <laughs> Either way, I, look, I'm, I'm an equal opportunist. I don't, I, I'm old. I don't like him. I don't like him. I gave I up. I tried, it. and I'm just like, I can't do it. It's just, do you, who was the guy that you mentioned right at the top of this segment? Who? Roddy Rich. Roddy Rich. Roddy Rich. No, I, no idea who that guy is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His his biggest song is a song called The Box. And he was like competing maybe a couple years ago. He was like competing with uh with I think it was Justin Bieber for like the number one song in the world at the time. So okay. yeah, yeah, but Roddy Roddy's doing his thing. But give me a uh one last question. Going back to the Ducks, do you have a score prediction for me this weekend? Oh, I'm I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say. 35-32, Oregon pulls off the field goal win at the end. That's what I'm calling. Walk off, field goal, three-point win, score in the 30s, 35-32. That's where I'm going. I like it, man. Well, Justin, appreciate you. I'll be following up with you this weekend, man. We'll be tapping in about the game for sure. Thanks for joining. Anytime, bud. 
On that note, we are going to leave y'all the only way that we know how, and that is to stay woke and go win.